Welcome back to The Shepherd's Pie, a slice of faith for our messy lives. I'm Tony Kolank, a professor at Ave Maria School of Law, father of five grown children, and the author of Religious Fiction for Teens and Adults. Two big news items to start the show today. Of course, the first one is about The Shepherd's Pie itself. For season three, we've been doing a new format, focusing not just on uh, issues about raising kids and issues that impact youth, but really looking at having engaging discussions and positive conversations about how we can apply our faith to the messes that each of us have in our lives. So kind of a practical show for Christians of all ages, but not ignoring issues with our kids. Uh, And then the second big news item is in October, October 24th, the fifth book in my a series for teens, The Hardwood Mysteries, is actually releasing from Loyola Press. So I'm excited about that. It's called Murder at Penwood Manor. You can actually pre-order it now. But today we are speaking with a good friend and uh, somebody who's been on the show before, award-winning author and journalist Amanda Lauer. And we're going to focus on how our faith can help us cope with some of the daunting challenges within our families. My guest today is Amanda Lauer. She's an award-winning author and journalist, the author of the Heaven Intended Civil War series. In addition, she's written two time travel novels, Anything But Groovy and Royal and Ancient, which we'll be talking about with her today because it's her latest release. She's also contributed short stories to several anthologies. She's been married to her husband, John, for over 40 years. They have four grown children. Amanda, welcome back to The Shepherd's Pie. Hi, thank you, Tony. I appreciate you having me on today. So real quick, before we jump into Royal and Ancient, tell the listeners a little bit more about uh, maybe how you've gotten into writing all these books. Yeah, I started my career many years ago, 40 some years ago, as a proofreader in the insurance industry. And I did that for like five years until we had our first child. And when I went back into the workforce, I did proofreading again for a major newspaper in our state. And from there, after proofreading thousands of articles, I figured out how to write articles. And when they were short of reporters for various things, I volunteered to start being a beat reporter, basically. When our particular papers folded, basically after 911, I went into freelance proofreading and freelance writing and writing articles. Well, one thing I found out about being a journalist is every journalist has a dream of writing their own book. And I really wanted to write a book that was something I wanted to read, something I had been looking for forever. I had been introduced to historic romance novels when I was probably in eighth grade by my mom, but they were the classic, what they call the bodice rippers. (laughs) And so they weren't exactly clean historic romances. I wanted to write a book that was a clean historic romance, something that I'd be proud to have my kids and my grandkids read someday. And that's exactly what I did. And it was about a six-year process from the beginning, the first word on the page, to actually holding that book in my hand. So my first book that came out in 2014 was A World Such as Heaven Intended, the first book in my Civil War series. And I just, this week, started book six. So it's, it's gone strong. That's great. I'm still in the middle of writing book six in my Harwood Mystery series too. So look at that. We are, I guess we're racing uh, nose to nose to see who can get book six out first. Yeah, I know having read some of the uh, the Civil War books in your Heaven Intended series uh, that you really don't shy away from 
dealing with some of the tough issues that come up in life, in our messy lives, if you will. But the one that was just recently released is not in that series. It's called Royal and Ancient. And I actually had a chance to read it uh, and even give you a little cover copy for it. So tell us a little bit about that one. It's kind of a time traveling book, right? Yep. So this is the second time travel book I've written. I love the genre. When I was in school, I was at a really tiny little Catholic school in northern Wisconsin when I where I went to grade school. And I read the book, A Wrinkle in Time. I can't tell you how many times I checked that book out of that library. I've always been fascinated with that topic. So I had written the first one, which came out in 2021, which was called Anything But Groovy. I had this idea and I wrote a short story that was included in one of the anthologies by Catholic teen book authors. And so that was Ashes Visible and Invisible. So I wrote a short story for them. And I ended up creating an entire book out of it, which is Royal and Ancient. And I actually had this idea of probably nine or 10 years ago, I started the first chapter and it just kept getting put on the back burner as other things were going on with my writing career. But this is a story about a 17 year old girl in the United States. She's working at a golf course. It was her her job in the city she's in. And her dad's in the Air Force. He's a single father. And so it's literally her last day of work before they're moving to the opposite coast, to the West Coast. And while she's working, this golf outing, she gets struck by lightning. And she wakes up, and she doesn't know it at the moment, but she's actually in Scotland on the oldest golf course in the world, Royal St. Andrews, and it's the year 1691. And she is tasked with basically figuring out how to live life in an ancient age and she falls pretty hard for the clan leader's son, who's the person who found her on the golf course. And he has an interesting background of having been in the monastery or studying, basically, for the religious life. But Catholicism was outlawed in Scotland in the late 1600s. And so his family is basically putting themselves at risk by continuing to practice the Catholic faith. And she was born and raised Catholic. She had no idea that at any time that you couldn't practice your faith, having grown up in the United States in modern days, it seems like such a foreign idea to her. And she ends up getting kind of embroiled in the politics of the time because the McDonald clan hadn't signed an oath to the King of England, basically saying that they wouldn't practice their faith anymore. Then there's an event that occurs the next year called the Glencoe Massacre, which happens while she's there. And so things get very uh, uh, interesting, I would say. But the story is, it's not all, you know, gloom and doom. There's a lot of humor in this because you have a modern girl with a, a man, a young man from the 1600s and they clash a lot, you know, their observations about life, but she learns so much from him because his faith is so strong. She loves his family too, because it's a, a typical larger Catholic family And she's an only child with a single parent. So life is a a lot different, you know, the day-to-day life. And she realizes life in the 1600s, even though it was harder in some aspects, in a lot of aspects, it was actually better from her perspective because without the cell phones and the iPads and all the distractions, people just spent a lot more quality time together. And she realized the most important things in her life were the relationships and interactions. So she learns so much when, when she's there. Of course, she's always thinking about, is she going to get thrown back into modern days? She doesn't know. But what she does is she depends on her faith. 
and she just feels like if God brought her to it, he'll bring her through it. Yeah, that's really interesting. And maybe can you just talk a minute or two about the history in Scotland? I don't know that probably the typical American knows about, you know, religious persecution in Scotland in the time that you're writing. How did that even happen? And and what did that persecution look like for Christians living there? Well, Scotland was traditionally a Catholic country, I mean, for centuries. This kind of all goes back to King Henry VIII, which is in about the year 1540, which I just finished another book in that era, so that'll come out next year. But when he wanted to divorce his first wife because she wasn't able to bear him a son, he basically broke with the Catholic Church and started the Church of England so that he could marry his second of six wives. And that created, you know, a big division, obviously, between the Catholics, the traditional Catholics in England, and the people who were following the Church of England, which was his new church. And of course, he wanted everyone to follow it. And, you know, the United Kingdom, it's basically, you've got Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland and and England, of course. So basically, all the countries that were under the control of England had to follow King Henry VIII and the Church of England for a while. And it depended, too, who was in charge, because there was his daughter, Mary, who was queen, and his daughter, Elizabeth, who was queen. And they one was Catholic, following faith, and one was following the Church of England. So depending who was in charge of each country at various times. But it got to the point where they wanted everyone to be following the Church of England, basically. And they wanted to stop Catholicism. I don't know a better way to put it, but they, so it was forbidden to be, to be practiced. For a long time, people were persecuted, literally martyred for practicing the faith. And a lot of people at that time too, when this first came about, they were practicing in secret because they did not want to give up on their faith. And what happens in the story, and this is based on a true story, is the McDonald clan was practicing in secret. They were no longer using the, the chapel on their grounds. And another clan found out, potentially, they don't really know how the story went, but someone reported them. And the leaders of the McDonald clan were basically slaughtered by, again, I'm not exactly sure who, if it was soldiers from Britain, if it was their neighboring clan. But that was the Glencoe Massacre. As you were doing research for the book and and as you're drawing it out in the characters in your in your novel here, how did people keep their faith when they had that kind of persecution? Um, and then did, did you discover any interesting kind of stories that would tie into that? Yeah, many people were basically tried for treason for like hiding monks in their houses or you know, helping religious people escape or what have you, because a, a lot of people were actually going to other countries like France or places like that where they could still practice the faith. Or people were doing it, like I said in my book, they had a, a safe room or a secret room where they were practicing. And there was a gentleman living on their property who was actually a priest, but who was disguised as like a handyman. So people were either doing it kind of underground, practicing the faith underground, or they were professing that they had embraced the Church of England, but they secretly hadn't. Or there were people who were 
define the Church of England and paid the ultimate price for doing that. And over the course of the story, obviously, it's it's mostly a romance kind of taking place in this context. Are there any of the kinds of life issues that we would recognize in our modern time that, you know, your characters have to encounter in the novel? I think one of the big plot lines is that the young man that our heroine falls in love with, basically. So we have Bronwyn and we have Ian. Ian's sister is a young newlywed and she and her husband are expecting and there's complications with the delivery of the baby. This is a time travel novel, of course, but so Bronwyn is traveling through time and she doesn't want to tell everybody because she thinks she'll be accused of being a witch or something. But eventually the secret gets out and the people who know assume, well, you've come from 300 years ahead. You must know how to fix all this, how to take care of this if you're really from the future come and help with this birth and this poor girl, she knows nothing about medicine other than seeing a few births in a movie or something. And so she is thrown into the situation where she's really in over her head. And all she has to go from is a, a situation in her real life of an aunt's delivery of her cousin that is similar to what this young lady is going through. And she relies on her knowledge of that situation and her faith Trust me, there was a lot of praying going on as she was trying to help this mom and this baby survive. Yeah, and those of us who are our parents know how tough it is when bad things happen to our kids for us to just deal with it or even uh, keep our own faith, if, especially when uh, you have tragedies in families. So was any of this inspired by uh, your own faith? And, and are there any times where you've had to have your faith really help you with an issue with regard to your family? Yep. Well, I'll give you two stories. One is I had the opportunity <laughs> I wasn't asking for it, but it just happened to deliver our granddaughter, Margaret, in an emergency situation in the back of a minivan, like a half a block from a public grade school. Part of that experience I used to write the book, you know, the delivery part, because being thrust into that situation, again, over my head, I've delivered four children, but I've never delivered or helped bring another child into the world. So I use that when writing. But another situation with our family in particular, too, is we have four children, like you mentioned. Our youngest daughter, when she was 12 years old, was diagnosed with two incurable autoimmune blood diseases. And it just like threw our family for a loop. Here we were, very healthy, fit family, and this just out of the blue happens. It was the most trying times, I would say the most trying time of our lives, my life, my husband's life, her siblings. And she just went through so much. I mean, she's doing well now, but we had a lot of years of uncertainty and times where we didn't know if she would make it, to be honest. And she was actually nominated to be a Make-A-Wish child in 2009. And by chance, her wish was to go to London to celebrate her 17th birthday. And what a neat experience. And some of the things we experienced when we were there worked their way into my books. But we relied so much on prayer. I mean, when you're literally at the end of your rope, you can't go any farther. You are so spent. All you have left is God and your faith. And I, I have a great devotion to the Blessed Mother and during those times, it was like, I just asked her to be a mother to me because I, I was just 
I couldn't go out anymore. So, yeah. And you said she, Elizabeth is your youngest daughter. Our youngest daughter, Amina, also actually was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at six years old. And, you know, that was definitely a, uh, a gut punch to our family. So, yeah, when people's kids get sick, it's tough for parents, I think, to sometimes understand that. So you talked a little bit about some of the religious devotions you had. You know, what are some of the things that you found, especially in, in those early years where you, I'm sure, were faced with just a lot of uncertainty and grief that we would naturally go through when we find out, you know, our kids are sick? Well, I think in the early years, I was just so overwhelmed that going to Mass was just the calm in the storm. I think I, I developed a much more, a greater devotion to Mass and just listening and experiencing it and realizing how profound it was. And then as the years went on, I mean, she's still dealing with these things. They are incurable. She's got it under control to a degree now, but we never know. And like I mentioned, I have a devotion to the Sacred Mother, to the Blessed Mother. And that has just grown so much through the years because Back in the day, I, I had it wasn't like a daily rosary prayer, but the last few years, I pray the rosary daily. I go to mass multiple times a week, and then during Lent, I throw in extra days there. But I just feel like the more prayers, the better. I'm always lighting candles for Elizabeth and our kids at church. I pray for them all the time. If I see something, a, a, a nice Bible quote or something, and it makes me think of them, I'll send it along. Or So Elizabeth definitely knows she's wrapped up in prayer. That's for sure. One of my favorite Bible verses from Romans is that God brings good out of all the things in our lives, you know, whether they're good or bad events. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. And I'm, I'm wondering if, as you look back on your life since Elizabeth was born, was that actually an event that led to your faith being able to deepen and your, and your practices in your faith to grow? I mean, would your faith be the same today except for your daughter being sick? I would say not. I think it was a huge eye-opener that I needed to look at my life and needed to deepen my faith and not just do things by rote, not just go to church every Sunday because that's what I'd always done since I was a child. I was inspired basically to learn more about the Catholic faith and to realize just like I said before, how profound this faith is. And I read many books every year. A lot of them are Catholic fiction, of course, but I also read a lot of books about the Catholic faith. And I want to be well-versed so I can tell other people about it and invite them to be a part of it. And especially invite the people back who've chosen for whatever reason to leave the Catholic faith. It's sad when I hear that. I want every fallen away Catholic to come back to the church. And I want to bring with them all sorts of people who have never experienced the beauty of this faith to come to the church as well. In a few minutes, we're going to do our entertainment segment. And I know you've got a book that you've been reading that you think uh, is actually beneficial for people who are reframing their lives. What advice might you have for especially a parent who, when they first learn that one of their kids is in some way in harm's way, whether it be an illness or something else that happens to them, from your own experience and any practical advice and how they get through that with their faith intact? Hang on to your faith, deepen your faith, 
pray to the saints. There's so many saints who have specialties that might help what your child is going through. I mean, parents have kids who are, have addictions. They have all sorts of things, not just illnesses per se. So hang on to your faith, deepen your faith, make sure you, you keep your whole family together. Like even just little things, like we added a font by our back door and everybody, when they walk out the back door, they cross themselves. And I'm not afraid to talk about my faith. I feel like before I was a little reluctant to do it, but now, especially with my kids, and it's kind of funny because even my grandkids, they know that anything Catholic-wise, grandma's the person to talk to. If they have a question about a saint, if they have a question about what goes on at Mass, the kids all direct them to me. So, yeah, I would say hang on to your faith. If people offer to help you, it's okay to, to take them up on the help. That's one of the things. We're, we're so used to being so independent. But if someone offers to bring a meal or something, don't be so reluctant to say yes. It's like people want to help and they feel good helping. So you don't have to feel feel awkward accepting help from people. And I guess try to with the other kids to make sure you don't forget about them and put them aside because I know they tried to make their needs less so we could keep our focus on Elizabeth. But you still need to... Be involved in their lives as much as you can and to support them because they're going through a lot too. All good advice. All right. So uh, so if folks are interested in getting a hold of any of your books, whether it's your Civil War series or some of your time travel books or your most recent release, Royal and Ancient, where should they go to do that? Well, I would say my website is probably the easiest, amandalower.com or Amazon like everyone does. <laughs> Yes. And of course, can they get your books at a small, uh, you know, independent or, or Catholic or Christian bookstore too? Well, yes, here in my city in Appleton, Wisconsin, they can go to St. Patrick's bookstore. So they carry all my work there. All right. Well, let's go ahead and take a quick pause for our entertainment segment. In our entertainment segment, I'd like to talk to my guests about a book that they're reading or a movie that they've seen that has impacted their lives or could help us in our own lives. And Amanda, uh, I understand you are actually reading a good one right now. I am. It's called Reframe Your Brain. And the subtitle is The User Interface for Happiness and Success. And it's by Scott Adams. This book is like so profound. It's a super quick, easy read. But what he does is he takes a usual frame that people think and he reframes it in a way that will be more successful for people. So I'm going to just give you four examples from the book that kind of blew me away. The usual frame, everyone is thinking about me. You hear kids say that a lot. Teenagers like, oh my gosh, everybody's. But how he reframes it is, you are only a bit player in their movie. That's kind of profound, isn't it? Simple but profound. Here's another one I think is especially appropriate in this day and age. The usual frame is social media is a form of entertainment. How he reframes it is social media is an addiction. Another one just off the top of my head, he, he talks about this a lot, but like alcohol, a lot of people use alcohol for entertainment, a lot of things centered around alcohol. 
his reframe for alcohol is alcohol is poison. To tell you truth, I uh, I've really taken that to heart and really thinking about you know giving it up forever. I'm good with that. Here's one that is kind of appropriate now of things that have gone on lately, but the usual frame about death is death is the end of this person, and how he reframes it is. Energy can change form, but it never disappears. So that's kind of helpful for people who've lost one. And this is one I like a lot too. My feelings are the result of my situation. And the reframe is how I feel is my choice. That's so true. No matter what happens to you in life, it's your choice how you're going to react. You don't have to let all these things stress you or upset you or whatever. You can make the choice. You make choices every second of the day. Just make a choice that is not going to upset you or what have you. I think that that's very interesting. Apparently, he's he has created some kind of course for success for homeschoolers. I'm not sure if it's out yet, but all his books are really good. But this one is particularly good. It's just so easy to read. All these little bite-sized segments uh, become successful and happy. And it's called Reframe Your Brain. All right, excellent. Well, Amanda, it has been great having you back on the Shepherd's Pie. I wish you all the best with the rollout of Royal and Ancient and the continued writing of your book six in your Civil War series. Uh, It's just been a pleasure having you today. Thank you. I enjoyed this so much. I always enjoy talking to you. And I thank you so much for having me on as a guest. It's always a pleasure. And I hope we get to talk again soon. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for the show today. We've been speaking with Amanda Lauer about her book, Royal and Ancient, and how we can use our faith to overcome some of the dawning challenges in our family, such as the sickness of a child. Again, this is Anthony Barone Kolank. If you'd like to learn more about me or check out some of my books for teens and adults, then you can go to my website, antonykolank.com. But until next time, may God bless us as we rely on our faith to work through the messy challenges in our lives.